Chapter 12 of The Group of Famous Women This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Group of Famous Women by Edith Horton Queen Victoria, 1819-1901 to Her court was pure, her life serene. God gave her peace, her land reposed. A thousand claims to reverence closed in her as mother, wife and queen. Alfred Tennyson On May 24, 1819, a little girl was born in Kensington Palace, London, who received the name of Victoria. Her father, Edward, the Duke of Kent, was the fourth son of King George III. At the time of Victoria's birth, it seemed unlikely that she would ever become queen. Between her and the crown stood three uncles and her father. But when, in January 1820, within a few days of each other, her father and the king died, it began to be seen that Victoria would in all probability become the future ruler of England. In consequence, her education was conducted with the greatest care. Her mother, the Duchess of Kent, devoted herself to the child and made every effort to develop in her all that was good and noble. Victoria lived a quiet and natural life in the open air, having for instructor a tutor who was a clergyman of the Church of England. When lessons were over, the little princess used to go out into Kensington Gardens, where she rode a donkey gaily decked with blue ribbons. Here she also walked and would kiss her hand to the children, who sometimes gathered about and looked through the railing to see a real princess. Victoria was very fond of dolls. She had 132, which she kept in a house of their own. She herself made their clothes, and the neatness of her needlework surprised all who saw it. The princess grew up a merry, affectionate, simple-hearted child, thoughtful for the comfort of others, and extremely truthful. Victoria's baptismal name was Alexandra Victoria. She preferred to be called by the latter name. But to the English people, Victoria had a foreign sound, and was not very popular. It remained for the Queen to make it illustrious and beloved. By the death of George IV in 1830, William, Duke of Clarence, came to the throne. As he had no children who might succeed to the throne, Victoria became the direct heir. King William was a good-natured, undignified sort of man, often ridiculous in his public actions. He encouraged Victoria to take part in public ceremonies, and if there was a hall to be dedicated, or a bridge to be opened, or a statue unveiled, the little princess was called upon quite often to act for the king at the ceremony. William reigned only nine years, expiring one morning in June 1837 at St. James's Palace in London. When a king or queen dies, it is the custom for persons of high rank to go immediately and salute the new king or queen. As soon as William therefore had drawn his last breath, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Lord Chamberlain went straight to Kensington Palace to notify Victoria 
that she had succeeded to the throne. It was five o'clock in the morning, and as she had just arisen from bed, she received them in her dressing robe. Her first words to the archbishop were, I beg your grace to pray for me. There is a pretty picture of this scene in the Tate Gallery in London, representing the two old men on their knees, before a young girl of eighteen years kissing her hands. And so, at the age of eighteen, Victoria became Queen of Great Britain and Ireland, and the Empire beyond the seas. Though not beautiful, the young Queen was self-possessed, modest and dignified. Every one bore testimony to the dignity and grace of her actions at this time. Victoria selected as her Prime Minister Lord Melbourne, to whom she was much attached, and who was her trusted adviser for many years, just eight days after the first anniversary of her accession to the throne, Victoria was crowned in Westminster Abbey, sitting in the chair where so many English monarchs have received their crowns. The coronation was of great splendour. The sun shone brightly as the procession left Buckingham Palace, and Her Majesty was greeted all along the route with enthusiastic cheers. When the Queen entered the Abbey, with eight ladies all in white floating about her like a silvery cloud, she paused as if for breath and clasped her hands. When she knelt to receive the crown, with the sun shining on her fair young head, the beauty and solemnity of the scene impressed everyone. The Duchess of Kent, Victoria's mother, was affected to tears. The ceremonies in the Abbey lasted five hours and the Queen looked pale and weary as she drove to the palace, wearing her crown. Carlyle, who was among the spectators, said, Poor little Queen! She is at an age when a girl can hardly be trusted to choose a bonnet for herself, yet a task is laid upon her from which an archangel might shrink. Many important matters had to be decided by the young Queen, and sometimes serious troubles grew out of her inexperience. However, being sensible and wise beyond her years, her decisions were for the most part just. With time she became more and more tactful and better able to cope with the difficulties of governing so great a nation. A matter of great interest to the public was Victoria's marriage. There were many princes willing and anxious to marry the young Queen of England, but Victoria had a mind and will of her own. She remembered with interest her handsome cousin, Prince Albert, of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha, who had visited England two years before, while she was still a princess. The Duchess of Kent had been fond of this nephew, whose tastes were refined and whose habits were good. Victoria herself remembered him with affection. Another visit was arranged by King Leopold, and this time Victoria's interest grew into love. One day she summoned the prince to her room and offered him her hand in marriage. It must have been a trying thing for her to do, but of course a mere prince could not propose to the Queen of England. Prince Albert was overjoyed, for he loved Victoria. The Queen announced her engagement to Parliament, and on February 10th, 1840, she was married in the Chapel Royal of St. James's Palace. 
she wore a white satin gown trimmed with orange blossoms and a veil of honiton lace costing one thousand pounds which had been ordered to encourage the lace-makers of devonshire guns were fired bells rung and flags weighed when the ceremony was completed after the wedding breakfast at buckingham palace victoria and albert drove to windsor castle past twenty-two miles of spectators who shouted and cheered the youthful pair there was great rejoicing and dinners were given to thousands of poor people throughout the kingdom after three days spent at windsor the queen and the prince consort as albert was called returned to london and began their busy life for the state victoria found a wise adviser in her young husband he was about her own age and like her had a sincere desire always to do the right thing for a while he was not liked in england owing to his foreign birth but before long he gained the affections of that exacting people the married life of victoria and albert was one of unusual happiness and beauty lasting for twenty years until eighteen sixty one the prince in dying left a family of nine children the eldest became the empress of germany and the second was the late king edward the death of the prince consort made a great change in the life of the queen she became very reserved in her widowhood and her withdrawal from public life lasted a long time to the displeasure of the english people she wore mourning for many years and was averse to presiding over ceremonious court functions although impetuous and wilful Victoria was yet quite willing to be advised by older and wiser persons, and the great men of England very soon learned to respect her character and give heed to her wishes. As a queen, she really reigned, which means that she was the true head and controller of public affairs. Naturally, she could not do it all herself, but she had the fortunate gift of knowing how to choose her helpers. No reign of any English monarch can be reckoned so great as that of victoria it is full of great events which would require several volumes to recite in eighteen forty nine she paid a visit to ireland in eighteen fifty one the first great world's exposition was held in london in eighteen fifty three there was a war with russia and in eighteen fifty seven the indian mutiny occurred years later in eighteen seventy six Victoria was formally proclaimed Empress of India. This was accomplished by means of the clever management of Lord Beaconsfield, her Prime Minister, who was a Jew named Disraeli and a very great statesman. She encouraged artists and literary men. She made Alfred Tennyson the Poet Laureate of England. Some of his most beautiful lines were addressed to her and the Prince Consort. The Duke of Wellington, victor at Waterloo when Napoleon was defeated, was her trusted friend and adviser. England, in Victoria's reign, made great strides in wealth, art, science and population. Great men clustered round this wonderful little woman and helped make her rule a glorious one. In 1887, when she had been queen for fifty years, England gave herself a great jubilee which was attended by all the great princes, representatives of kings in the world. Queen Victoria was fond of music, 
was an excellent singer and spoke many languages. When in London she lived at Buckingham Palace, going at times to Windsor Castle and occasionally to Balmoral Castle in Scotland, where she would throw off the cares of state and live simply as an English gentlewoman. She had another pleasant home on the Isle of Wight, called Osborne House, where she had her last illness. Victoria died on January 22, 1901, in her 82nd year. Her reign was the longest in English history, being nearly 64 years. It was exceeded in Europe only by Louis XIV of France, who reigned 71 years. The English people mourned Victoria sincerely and deeply. She had added greatly to the extent and glory of her country. She had been a great and wise ruler. She had commanded the respect of every one at home and abroad. And while she did not talk much, her life proved that a woman can rule as well and wisely as a man. Her private life as mother, wife and sovereign has been a noble example. At her own request, Queen Victoria's funeral was a military one, her body being placed in the mausoleum built for Prince Albert at Frogmore. End of chapter 12